this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming week. Today's passage is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It is the reading for the Ascension of the Lord in the year C cycle of the lectionary. It's one of the scriptures that will be read on May 29, 2022. Here in these opening words in the book of Acts, we read of Jesus's final instruction to his disciples and his ascension. It is an episode described here in Acts chapter 1 that's also described at the ending of some of the other gospels. But in Luke's uh, version of the story, uh, there is his gospel and the book of Acts. So writes Luke writes two different volumes, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and they go together. So you literally could read through Luke, finish Luke, and open up the Book of Acts and feel like you're reading the very same story. And so as this uh, particular passage opens, uh, Luke is going to begin describing why he's written this particular story. And we're going to handle this text in an unusual fashion. We're going to talk about the beginning first, the ending second, and then the middle of the story, third. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, Luke says in verse one, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So he's telling this person, Theophilus, that the book is written for them. So Theophilus, that word literally means lover of God. And so it could be a specific title. There's a person named Theophilus that maybe commissioned Luke to write this or paid for it to be written. It could be a specific individual, or Theophilus could simply be a generic title, a lover of God. It's more addressed broadly to Christian community in some ways. What's interesting is this choice of language or the construction Luke uses, whose Greek is considered to be the apex use of Greek in the New Testament. And many scholars believe that the Gospel of Luke is the best sample of first century Greek writing there is, period. Not just in the Bible, but at all. Luke has a really awkward construction to this very first verse, and it's because of what he's trying to communicate. He says, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Did you get that? What Jesus began to do and teach. That's the strange construction right there. And Jesus began things according to Luke's gospel. And it's, it's interesting that it doesn't talk about how he finished anything, but how he began things. Often we think of Jesus's life in some kind of cosmic totality, that Jesus did it all. And in fact, Jesus did many things, but he also began a lot of things. And Luke wants us to hear that at the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, this is the only place in the book of Acts where it talks about the 40-day period in verse 3 that Jesus spent with the disciples after his resurrection, but before his ascension. And so in the life of the church, we celebrate Easter as a 50-day feast. And that means we measure those 50 days as the period of time from Easter Sunday through the ascension, that's 40 days, and then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. That's how we get the great 50 days that start from Easter and go all the way to Pentecost. Jesus, during this time, presented himself alive after death. 
He gave convincing proofs, as Luke tells us. He spoke of things of the kingdom of God. This kingdom language is important. At the end of verse 3, it says that Jesus appeared to them over and over for a period of 40 days, speaking of things regarding the kingdom of God. Kingdom language is important to Luke because he's really highlighting that the kingdom that Jesus brings is a confrontation with the, the kingdom of Rome, of empire in their midst. And even of the Jewish notion of kingdom is now being transformed in a new way. They're commanded to stay in Jerusalem and to wait during this 40-day period and that they'll receive the promise of the Father. That The Trinitarian nature of this text is really important to Father, Son, Holy Spirit and the way in which they engage in these early verses in Luke's Gospel, verses 1 through 5. You can see a different role for God the Father, the role for the Son, the role for the Spirit, and how they flow and dance together. We're going to talk more about the Spirit in a moment. Jesus, when he's ascendant in verse 9, it says he departs on a cloud. Now, clouds, as we know in the Bible, are vehicles. They're, they're like automobiles for heavenly beings. Elijah uses a cloud uh, to depart into heaven. Uh, the Romans use clouds in a similar fashion. And so Jesus' departure on a cloud will be the same as his return on a cloud. And what Luke helps us to see here at the beginning of the book of Acts is that, um, that the life of Jesus is bracketed. Not only do we see Jesus come on a cloud, we'll see him exit on a cloud. There's a bracketing of Jesus as the beginner and the finisher. The beginner and the finisher. And by beginner, I don't mean the, uh, the unfamiliar. By the beginning, beginner, I mean the one who begins and the one who finishes. And then there's something that goes in between the beginning and the ending. And that's what the book of Acts is going to help us learn. What is it that stands between the beginning and the ending? And that's the key passageway for us here. That Jesus sets things in motion. That Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection has defeated death. So that work is accomplished. But the mission of the church is unaccomplished. It is not yet done. Jesus sets things in motion. And so the, the fixation that the disciples have on Jesus at this moment in this story is very well attended, intended, but it often denies the power of the Spirit. And the same is true for us. If we asked people, even in our own churches today, talk about who God is, they could talk about that. Talk about who Jesus is, they could talk about that. But ask them to talk about the Holy Spirit, well, that's a little bit more difficult to do. The Holy Spirit is an important character here, and we're going to learn more about it in just a moment. But for right now, let's just remember that awkward phrasing in verse 1, the things that Jesus began to do and teach, and that Jesus is handing that work on to someone else. So I want to jump to the end of the story in verse 6. When we get to this moment in the story where the disciples say to Jesus, you know, when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? To be honest, this is kind of the face palm moment in the story, you know, where Jesus probably just hung his head down about how the disciples have not quite heard what he's been telling them. You see, what happens here is interesting, and that's why I wanted to talk about this section of the story as the ending, even though it's in the middle of the story, is as soon as Jesus tells them, 
that he's leaving and that the Holy Spirit will be given to them, they want to ask, they ask, is the kingdom being restored to Israel? They jump all the way to the end of the story. So the idea here is that Jesus begins things and that ultimately he ends things, but there's this middle portion that we're going to learn that the church, the followers of Jesus, are responsible for holding. And what the disciples do here in verse 6 is they jump all the way to the end of the story. It's almost like they don't want themselves to be in the story. They just want Jesus to handle it all. They jump to the ending. And their ending, of course, is social and political. Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Again, linked to the kingdom of Israel as they knew it. They're focused on time. And what Jesus is helping them understand, they are called to a place. So the orientation of this question is a little bit self-absorbed. And the missionary effort of Jesus is lost. So the disciples kind of see all of these questions in relationship to themselves, not in relationship to the mission. And so Jesus responds by saying, well, it's not for you to know periods of time that are appointed by the Father that has been set by his own standard. Then he tells them in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you. You see, this opens a key passageway for us here. The timing of things is not our calling. Something else is. You see, a fixation solely on Jesus in some ways rejects the work of the Spirit. And the fixation that we place on time, when things need to happen, often rejects the texture that is involved in relationships, what it means for us to be human, what it means for us to be growing and maturing and forming as people. You know, by the disciples just jumping right to the end, is it that this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? they actually very much miss their own potential to be transformed into agents of change in the world as agents of transformation. So sometimes when we get caught in the struggle of timing, why is this happening to me now? What we're really struggling with is the fact that maybe we can't find our place in the now. And the way we manifest that question is wondering, why is this happening instead of what is it I need to do or be in this moment to be faithful? And then we turn to the middle of the story, the heart of it. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, when Jesus responds to the disciples about their question of timing. It's about the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. This is the heart of Luke's story here in Acts. It's the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the chief character in the book of Acts. The book is called the Acts of the Apostles. That's actually a misnomer. It would be better called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're told by Jesus that John baptized with water back in verse number five. But they are going to be baptized with the Spirit. Now, being baptized with the Spirit is common language in Pentecostal circles. In Pentecostal churches, they talk often about being baptized with the Spirit. Remember, the word baptize, baptizo in Greek, it means to dip. 
And uh, in this particular instance, it's meant in two ways. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and so on. So this, this dipping into the Spirit's power is going to enable the disciples to do two things, that they will have power, so there will be giftings and manifestations of the Holy Spirit evident in their lives, and the second thing Jesus tells them is that they will be witnesses. That's the point to which that power is directed. So they receive power to be witnesses. This is an important dynamic to watch in the book of Acts as things play out. Power is given not for power's sake. Power is not given <clears throat> for sensationalism or self-centered approaches. Power is given to be witnesses. That's the point of the power. So the giftings and the manifestations and the calling we receive from the Holy Spirit are all designed to make us witnesses so that others will know of the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. That this work is not about timing. It's not about how long it'll take or how short it will take. It's about the mission. What does Jesus say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, which is a city, Judea, the area around Jerusalem, Samaria, that's the region next to Judea, and as far as the remotest part of the earth. You see, it's almost like concentric circles moving outward. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And Acts is going to tell us about the ends of the earth. There's other passages in the book of Acts where we're going to find that Paul takes himself all the way to Rome uh, on his way to Rome in the book of Acts. That's the end of the earth, the center of the ends of the earth. And the Ethiopian eunuch, a story that's coming up later in Acts, is from the remotest part of the earth. It's the edge of the Roman map, if you will. So Acts is going to tell us the story about how these disciples received power to be witnesses to go to every single place that's described here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, all of these locations will be recorded in the book of Acts. You see, this is the mission, if you will, in the middle, that the church has no purpose outside of this. Even after Jesus is taken up into heaven in the ascension, there's an appearance of, a, of two men in white clothing, it says, that appear next to the disciples while they're looking up into heaven watching Jesus ascend. And they're asked this question, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you have watched him go into heaven. The issue in the book of Acts is the mission. It's not looking up in the sky. It's the mission. It's not trying to get out of this world. It's trying to stay in this world. This is important for us to understand, and it's the key passage for us, is that we cannot do what Jesus has asked us to do without the power. What we're going to read in the book of Acts over the next 10 days, as it's described in Acts chapter 1, are the disciples waiting in Jerusalem, either looking up into the sky, or they're going to get together and try to figure out who's going to replace Judas. All of the work that they do is drawn inward. In other words, they haven't turned any attention toward witness or proclamation. They turn all their attention inward. They become, for 10 days, a navel-gazing community until they receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, then they become witnesses. 
It helps us remember what Jesus said. We won't be witnesses till we receive the power, and the purpose of the power is to be witnesses. How are we experiencing that power today? How are we experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How have we received power to be witnesses? Because we're called to go on a mission too, just like the disciples were. That work is undone. We live in that bracket of Jesus' coming and his coming again. And in that bracket, in that space, we have a work that we need to be about. And Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 describes it so clearly. We know the beginning and the ending. And we also know the only way to bridge the beginning and the ending, and that Jesus began to do and teach many things. And it's our job to continue that work. This is our evangelistic effort. And God has given us everything we need to do it. What God simply needs are those who are willing and able to do it. And that's everyone. Every single one of us is called to be witnesses. And may it be so in our midst. That's it for this week. If you have comments and reflections, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News on the upper right-hand corner, and then the drop-down menu, click on Podcasts. Then click on this particular episode, and feel free to leave a comment. I'd love to be in dialogue with you. As I've been mentioning over the last couple of weeks, Passages will be taking a pause after this episode. And the reason for this pause is important um, is because the podcasting studio is going to be uh, disassembled here shortly for a period of time because um, I will be relocating from Sacramento, California, where I've been serving uh, the California-Nevada Conference of the United Methodist Church to a new ministry that God has called me to. And that beginning July 1, I'll be serving as the new lead pastor at the first free Methodist church in Seattle, Washington. And so while the podcast studio is disassembled in moving boxes and in a moving truck, we have to take a little bit of a pause. And once things get settled up in Seattle and uh, the work of ministry of serving that first free uh, Methodist church in Seattle begins, I'll then be able to chart a course about how passages will return and be a part of the life of that congregation and also a, a part of the life of those who want to tune in abroad and listen and share in our journeys as we move through the scriptures together. And so when Passages returns, it will return in connection to my preaching and teaching work at First Free Church in Seattle. And I'm really excited about this new opportunity for ministry. Stay tuned to my blog at revcraig.com for news about when Passages will return and news about what the new ministry in Seattle will look like. For now, I bid all of you grace. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again very, very soon.